Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to um, Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it's Friday morning, uh, 7 a.m., um, and you have we have Jacob in the studio um, with Lali Alidita on her way, um, but unfortunately um, she's just running a bit late. Um, but we should be able to go ahead with the rest of the program um, before she arrives. Um, just to tell you, tell listeners, we have a pretty packed program coming up today. Uh, with a you know a pre- we have over least free um interviews um coming up um we we have we're going to be interviewing Mahmoud from the Kurdish Democratic Center to talk about the recent results of the Turkey elections um that have happened quite recently don't know the specific days but I think it was um, last weekend um, and then we'll be talking to uh, two people f- um, who are organising the Students of Sustainability Conference um, we'll be coming in the studio and we'll be talking about this conference um, that's coming up uh, from July 6th um, to the 12th um, and you know in Melbourne, and then it's going to be quite a, an exciting um, conference um, bringing together lots of um, different activists and um, a lot of the um, from the different movements together to sort of, you know, discuss how we can fight for and make the world a better place and more sustainably, of course. Um, and then we'll be having an interview with Rachel from Friends of the Earth to talk about, uh, you know, Matthew Guy's recent kind of proposal of, to build a bunch of roads. Um, yeah, basically when Matthew Guy is going to be ru- running on the, in the state election for the Liberals, he will be running on a, a platform that he is going to build a massive amount of roads and potentially build the, the north, basically build, rebuild the build the east-west link that we stopped last time. Now, I guess um, there's quite a number of exciting headline stories um, that we'd like to talk about. Uh, probably listeners have probably heard about quite exciting news um, that happened in the United States. Um, in the United States, we have, um, you know, we have... Um, we have the recent sort of um, we have the recent nomination of Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. Um, she is a ten-year-old Latin uh, American in New, the New York who has she has unseated a powerful ten-term New York congressman to have a chance of becoming uh, the youngest person in Congress um, for all the Democrats. Um, so basically, how, how um, what has happened is um, an open kind of socialist um, who is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America has basically won the pre-selection um, to be the Democratic candidate for um, for Congress in New York, um, which is a safe Democratic seat, which has a voting... Um, um, which essentially 90% of people vote Democrats in that particular seat, um, and those elections are coming up in November, but she has essentially won the pre-selection nomination, um, which is probably might be a bit 
um, for probably listeners in Australia, what that basically means is the kind of pre-selection process um, for the candidate for the Democrats was basically a kind of open, kind of democratic kind of process. Um, but it is very exciting. She, her, she won um, the nomination on a very radical po- platform, you know, calling for the abolition uh, abolishment of ICE, uh, you know, free healthcare, you know, in, uh, a significant increase in the minimum wage, um, and it really got kind of shows, um, you know, that the way there's a kind of wave of radicalism sweeping the United States, um, and that socialist ideas are more popular than ever. Uh, so, and um, I think Lali has just arrived in the studio. Good morning, listeners. I'm sorry about <laughs> being late. Had a very busy week, and I, I just forgot to put the alarm on. Mm. It's terrible, but anyway. Oh well, um, four minutes. It's better you arrive than <laughs> not arriving at all. So, yeah. um, I was just um, talking about the quite exciting news story about Alexandra um, Ocayo Cortez. Um, yes. yes um, who just got? Um, who's just been nominated? Basically, won the pre-selection for the Democratic um, to be the Democratic candidate in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one particular seat in New York, which I think is very exciting because it is. A, it essentially means we um, there's a chance that we will get an open socialist elected in the Congress of the United States. Mm. It also show, demonstrates that people are responding to the extreme right wing politics displayed by the current um, government, and especially Trump, and they're stirring up people to reach out to more progressive candidates, which is excellent. Mm. That means we can have um, we can see more. Um, progressive issues being debated and opened up for discussion at a, a different level and and maybe even strengthen, you know, mm. Bernie Sanders and um, Elizabeth Warren who are quite good in their, in, in mm. their approach to politics. Well, what's, what's interesting is um, her win is kind of a bit more remarkable when you consider the fact that um, her... Her, her, the opposing candidate, um, you know, has been there for ten terms. Yes, yes. Um, and that he was also uh, he um, he also outspent her in terms of like because he got millions of dollars and sort of donations from kind of Wall Street kind of backers and so they, on. They didn't do a lot of uh, fundraising publicly because they were all sort of well set up. The machine was doing everything. Whereas uh, God has did a lot of grassroots um, campaigning. Yeah. This is really good, and that's a good result for Yeah, her. and I think there's gonna, it's going to create some interesting um, problems in issue... Well, dynamics, dynamics. Dynamics within yes. the Democrats, <laughs> because um, a lot of the establishment Democrats are basically, ooh, they're getting a bit scared, um, in a sense that, you know... A socialist is now open socialist is running under the banner and they're basically making it say, well, we have to be a party of centrists. Um, you know, I don't think socialism is on the rise yeah. in the Democrats. You know, um, I think this is just uh, exception to the rule. Not actually, it's not actually going to be the norm. But of course, they'll say that, but they'll probably do everything in their power to kind of undermine any kind of socialist coming through the Demo- um, coming through the democratic machine. But I think, you know. Regardless, you know, there's got to be lots of different opinions on the left about, you know, about the tactics of the left. But I think this actually represents um, something, a move to the left that I think should be celebrated and exciting. And whatever will come out of it, we'll have to wait and see. Um, It's a bit like, um, um, what's his name in um, the UK, while being inside the establishment, has to be able to carve out a um, a You mean Jeremy Corbyn? That's it. (laughs) How can you forget (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn? I still haven't woken up yet. Um, opening up uh, left space within the already established parties. How far it'll go, we don't know. But it's it's a good good beginning for that particular mm. you know for for the for this time when I mean, there's so much um, 
uh, horrible stuff happening in, in the U.S. You can list list mm. them. But, um, yeah, it's a good left space, and let's watch it. Let's uh, see how it develops. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm going to move on to this other sort of news story I kind of want to talk about. I kind of prepared this in kind of my head. Um, it's about the World Cup. I kind of wanted to talk oh. about some of the politics um, <laughs> that have actually happened um, to make a bit of a um, – but, but basically the positive news is basically – every single World Cup game will be shown on SBS. <laughs> and now good. the political context for that is actually quite interesting. And I think it actually just shows, because essentially years um, years before, um, SBS, which is our national broadcaster, made a deal with Optus um, that they all get, in exchange that they'll get some of the English Premier League games yep. and that, you know, and that Optus, they'll be the private corporation and company will, um, will um, you know, stream live all the World Cup games. Yep. Now, what ended up happening was because, it, and it just shows, you know, the failure of private, privatisation, uh, private exactly enterprise, view, yes. um, is that when Optus could barely show the World Cup games, yeah. in fact, when people had paid for the World Cup mm. and then they tried to watch um, the World Cup, what they on ended Optus. up getting was, on Optus, what they ended up getting was um, an error screen that That's showed... Right. Uh, and so that put, that allowed sort of the, opened up this space for sort of SBS to basically put the pressure on, um, on Optus to basically, well, give us all the rights to the games. Um, they've kind of focused bit by bit. First, it was all the group stage games for like, uh, well, first it was the group stage games for the next three days because there were serious power outages. And then they made it, then they put progress to, all the group stage games, and then then uh, now, as of yesterday, they've managed to progress to a, well. SBS is going to be showing the entire World Cup. So but I think. How, how, well, so what carrier are they using? SBS because it's interesting. I thought they'd be using um, these carriers to be able to access um, the images from the World Cup. So mm. and now, so well, it's more they. It's I think it, how it works is more the licensing. Um, whether whether their broadcasters have the right to okay. show. So basically, what or or Optus has got is is the copyright to be yeah. able to show the games. Um, and they haven't. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think what it just shows is that, you know, SBS uh, is a public institution, is the one that's... Has run well. Uh, has run well, and yeah. it's best equipped um, to show the World Cup. And that's I, I right. guess another thing I, I like to make a, an important point, and this relates, goes into another story about the World Cup, is actually one thing that's impressive about, you know, um, the commentary is the commentary is actually much better yeah. than Optus, um, and they also correctly pronounce they also correctly pronounce names, pronounce yes. names of the players, and yes. that brings me into the next kind of story of like you know before you before you move on, but also um, means that people at, uh, working in SBS will retain their jobs, you mm. know, as opposed to to the the way Optus operates and things. Yes. And as you, as you said, you know, uh, uh, being public doesn't mean that it function doesn't function well. It, it's functioned exception. Well. Yeah. And, and and despite that, the political connection would be the fact that the, the Turnbull government wants to give private enterprise a huge tax cut. Yes. Although they've, they've delayed it, they haven't been able to get to the Senate, but the fact that that it, it contradicts what's mm. happening there. Yeah. And 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 football, uh, soccer is big. Everybody watches. I mean, everybody I know who they know who Manchester United is. They know Tottenham Court and all these the soccer teams in England. So there are a lot of people who follow um, yeah. soccer. And, well, and I think another fun. another funny thing is around the time that these sort of um, problems with Optus' stream service of the World Cup were going, you know, Malcolm Turnbull came to the rescue. And tweeted that he had actually spoken to the CEO of Optus, and his and the Optus CEO has assured me, assured him, yeah. 
that they that the problems are going to be resolved. And yeah. it's quite funny, you know, if, if Malcolm Turnbull was a genuine kind of socialist sort of prime minister, I think what he would do would be, well, if this would happen, well, I'm just going to give the rights to SBS, put it back into public hands. <laughs> but of course, he 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 has a, a particular ideological agenda in the sense that he actually wants to see private enterprise. Yeah, well, he wants to privatise ABC. Yeah. You know, that's just clear. His party has voted in favour of it. Mm. So this is a, a complete egg in the face, but I don't know if they're going to mm. even bother to take note of it. That's yeah. a problem. Um, just want to um, go into the next story kind of related to um, the World Cup is one of the presenters of the World Cup, um, Lucy Zellick, um, yes. had received quite a lot of, you know, she's actually received sexist backlash before, like going back all the way to 2014. And in fact, um, you know, all the kind of sexist rhetoric because mm. simply because she was she's a woman. She's very good. Yeah. And, um, and she was almost at the, in the process of quitting her job in 2014 because of the kind of sexist abuse she was receiving, um, back in 2014. Um, she originally started as an A-League presenter. Anyway, what, what has happened in probably in, um, some people have kind of heard is, you know, she's received backlash for correctly pronouncing the players' names. Um, and you know, their people comments have been, you know, that, you know, it's annoying. And then, but then she made a kind of like, along with her other, um, the other programmer or presenter of the, of the World Cup, you know, they made on, on air, they made a very passionate defense of why it's important. Um, it's, it's important because it's, you know, it shows that we respect you know, the country that we're covering, it shows that we, you know, it show, it also shows that, you know, that we owe, we owe our jobs to these players and that, that we respect the, the nationalities. They're, they're and funny. FBS is also a place by which we're inclusive That's of right. different cultures. Right. It's interesting. I was watching that bit yesterday. Um, and because my daughter likes soccer and we, we, um, we saw the bit where they were talking about pronunciations and they've already created a advertisement explaining why it's important to pronounce people's names properly. Mm. And a little boy, I think he must have been not even eight, he was, he was saying, well, you've got to pronounce it pro- properly because, um, it's respectful to them and it's, it's, it's who they are. It, it's connected with identity. Mm. Uh, you know, you identify as a particular, um, a person from a particular country and, and culture and hist- historical, um, you know, stuff and, so, and all the stuff that goes with where you come from. You're connected to that, 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 um, you know, place, so to speak. So it was very cute for a, for like a seven year old or something explaining this. To people who just don't get it. There's one guy who, who was, his name is Luay, L-U-A-Y, and, and, and Aussies shortened it to Lou, Lou, and mm-hmm. they called him Lou all the time. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he eventually accepted it and said, oh, well, this is survival. Which happens to me. Nobody calls me my full name because they can't pronounce it properly. Um, they, they, they change it to Melissa. I said, where do you get Melissa from? My name's Lalita. And they just cannot get it. Mm. So it, it is, it is denying people their right. And it is the, the rules are set by the person who is in charge, not the person who's coming in and, you mm. know, participating in the culture mm. here. Yeah. And I also, yeah, I think it's completely unacceptable that there's been these sexist attacks on Lucy. Yeah. Um, because what, what it actually shows is that, you know, you know, a lot of, in you know this man-dominated world, women basically can't win if they're too got good at their jobs, like Lucy is. Yes. Um, they still receive you know sexist abuse. She, that we have to fight fight back on that one, and I'm glad she's fighting back because not acceptable. Mm. And SBS is certainly supporting her, which is a good sign. Um, so 
She's good. I mean, she's good at her job. That's the other thing. She's good at her job. She pronounces names properly, and she knows what she's doing. And and you can't you can't fight that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um. I think that's moving on to um. Do you have? Well, I might play. I'll play a quick announcement. Um. Shall play another announcement of the radiophone, and we'll actually just have just a quick um announcement of where the radiophone's at and why it's important to. Okay. Um, welcome back, listeners. And just just a reminder for those who have. Uh, pledged and haven't paid uh, to the Radiothon for Green Life Weekly Radio, please um, pay up. Uh, that's that's where it's important for you know for the, the um, program to keep running, and we need that support. And anyone who would like to donate, I'll encourage people to donate because we have another ten percent to fill. Um, we would be grateful if you could just send it, even if you send ten dollars. Ten people sending ten dollars means we've reached the hundred percent target that we set ourselves. So we are almost there. Uh, it's the last leg. So please, um, those who've got a few dollars to spare, anything over two dollars is tax deductible, of course. So dig deep and give us the um, the the benefit of um, some donation from you. It'll be absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for supporting us, for all those who supported us and 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 paid up. Hmm. Okay, um, so, um, Lali, do you have any kind of particular news? We have an interview at 7.30, so is there yeah, a kind of news is, article you want to talk about? Yeah, this is something that's been bothering me a lot, actually, because I covered this topic at least four years ago, five years ago, on a different program. It was um, Good by Sea, and it was about Southeast Asia. And uh, it's the TPP, of course, and this is TPP2, as they s- uh, it's, it's, no, TPP, where 11, um, countries, I think, get together to, um, make an agreement. And the, um, agreement is so unfair to workers. One of the key things, um, I found when, when I was, um, trying to interview somebody on this was that, uh, all union negotiations will go overseas because the countries are given such uh, leeway in, in what they can do. So our industrial law uh, may not be respected in relation to the work that people do in Australia because if it's owned by somebody offshore, then they can have the negotiations offshore and local laws won't apply. So all the hard work done by unions here will be completely ignored, becomes irrelevant. Um, so there was there was a um, protest um, more than 100 people uh, of uh, members of unions and um, aid and development organizations, health, environment, and other groups rallied in Sydney um, earlier on this month. And um, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP 11 trade agreement, the rally was organized by the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, FTNET. The acronyms are very um, cumbersome. So the st- this standing committee and other, uh, another state inquiry will report on the deal before the parliament considers implementing the necessary legislation in September this year. So the protest called, uh, called on Labour, the Greens and the Crossbench Centres to block the legislation and effectively stymie Australia's participation in TPP 11. The, the rally... Chair um, and Afternet convener Dr. Patricia Reynold said the TPP-11 without the U.S. is still a bad deal because it would increase corporate rights at 
the expense of people's rights. It still, it still includes special rights for the global companies to bypass national courts and sue governments in unfair international tribunals over health, environment, and um, industrial laws. So things like if you, if you were to boycott, like the BDS would become illegal. And it means they can take the groups that organize uh, BDS to court and they will probably win because the law will be on their side. And that's the sort of laws they are, they are hoping to implement in September. So this is a very important campaign for every single person in this country who supports um, workers' rights. And you know, nationalism, in a way, comes into it because if your own country's laws are not being respected – then what, what's going on here? So it's, it's, you, you see a contradiction here because they, they whip up nationalism for their own purposes, especially the, the right-wingers uh, and, and even the conservatives. Um, you find they say, well, it's Australians for Australian jobs and, 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 and you, know, you send troops over to, to, to defend Australian rights. And here they are legally handing over Australians' rights to global corporations. So this contradiction needs to be thought through by people who think, um, you know, this is Australia and Australia will look after us and look, will look after the citizens. No, it's not. Because, I mean, the way I see it is I see most of the parliamentarians who are conservative and on the right, right wing of, of the political um, line, so to speak, um, really are salespeople for the corporations and big business. And this is what they're doing. They're giving companies a lot more rights to attack working uh, working conditions and wages, and this will be the end of a decent wage for a decent job in this country. Um, and all the historical battles we've had to get those rights, whether it's holidays or sick leave or long service leave, will be down the drain. So look out for this um, campaign, people, because it's coming long, and well, it's not long, not long before the, the, the government meets to implement the laws in September. So we need to be on the top of it. And of course, Malcolm um, uh, Turnbull is uh, dreaming, um, and he thinks Australians will support a deal that puts more importance on the profits of the multinational corporations than the health of the Australian people and the environment, which means even the PBS list may be affected, and the environmental gains we've made in Australia will also be rolled back. So that's an important struggle to keep an eye on. Okay, um, of course, when all this is going on, uh, people are discussing the right to strike, and Sydney University, um, the branch of the Northern Territory uh, national, sorry, National Tertiary Education Union, NTU, held a forum um, last week, and the Professor John Buchanan from the University of Sydney Business School told the forum, the current Fair Work Act, FWA, introduced by the previous Labor government, is the second worst industrial relations legislation in Australian history after John Howard's work choices. The FWA cannot, refor- cannot be reformed. It needs to be totally replaced. The heart of the issue is that our current labor laws are structured to demobilize solidarity between different sections of workers and and their unions. Despite being weakened um, over recent decades, the Australian labor movement is still strong. 
It is still capable of acting as a unified force with a considerable tradition of solidarity as shown during the 1998 Patrick's uh, waterfront dispute. So the right to strike was essential to previous industrial struggles, including Claire O'Shea penal um, powers dispute in 1969 and the New South Wales Builders Labour Federation Greenspan movement of the early 1970s. So we need to learn from the history of the union movement and re-win our right to strike today. And this is going to feed into this new legislation they're bringing in because when big corporations make deals, um, this is the sort of things they want chopped off from our agreements or awards. So it's all coming one after the other, um, listeners, so we need to be a bit more active in relation to fighting for to, to defend what we have um, gained over the decades and um, realize what actually is going on. Like that's the most important thing is inform yourselves. Go to the webs- various websites and look at these things. And you, you can just type in TPP and you'll get tons of information um, and, and industrial um, disputes around the country. There's always, always something going on. So we're going to have to perk up and do something about this attack, which I see as an as, as overall broad attack on all working conditions, health and environmental issues, um, the TPP that's coming in, and this, this uh, current industrial law where strikes are not allowed and solidarity. Yeah. With each other, it's not allowed. It's yeah. got to be turfed there's, there's actually going to be um, a public meeting actually tomorrow, um, actually organised by sort of a group, um, Right to Strike, and it's endorsed by the RTBU, um, and it's going to be happening at 2pm tomorrow at the RTBU office, where they're going to be discussing that kind of question of, you know, how can we can build a kind of industrial relations campaign to win the right to strike. Because um, I guess, you know, one of the things about the right to strike is it's kind of central to a lot of, Union organ um, to a lot of to actually increasing the power of a lot of unions because our laws are industrial relations laws are so bad that it's almost you know because technically it's illegal for workers to go and strike in support of another group of workers or in support of another stru- of another political struggle like for example unions going on strike um, in solidarity with uh, some other kind of a press kind of or some other campaign that's happening. Yeah, but on the up, we have to look at um, the millennials who are in favour of socialism, a poll that came out not long ago. The Centre for Independent Studies, CES, a right-wing think tank, is not at all happy with the results of the survey. It um, commissioned from international polling agency, uh, UGov Galaxy, to find... Uh, find out that the attitudes of millennials, people born between 1980 and 1996 in Australia, to socialism and capitalism. The polls found that 58% were um, in fi- Sorry, that noise disrupted my train of thought. Were favorable to socialism, and 59% thought that what capitalism has failed and government should exercise... Um, more control of the economy. Majority of women and men, uh, those who were universally educated, um, tape educated or had no tertiary education and who lived in urban regional areas favored socialism. The higher proportion of these, uh, those favoring socialism were the university educa- educated 64%. 
um, so you can say the hub of um, radicalism is still in the universities like in the 1960s when 60s and 70s when the Vietnam War organized the war. youth <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll differ on that um, as someone who's actually currently at university now I don't think there's actually I don't really think there's much radical about about how universities um, educate. Um, in fact, it's not, the, it's not the education. This is the uh, people who are in support of socialism. They did a survey, and, it's, and yeah. It's oh yeah, but I think in terms of the survey, um, what it kind of says to me is, I think you know, people, a lot of young people's kind of experiences, material experiences of capitalism, you know, with insecure work, yeah. rising rent is actually, is what sort of breaking people's kind of you know faith in you know the the economic system we live in because um, capitalism spends uh, such a um, spends a lot of time trying to com- um, trying to make people accept that this is the way the system is and it's fa- all fair and dandy. <laughs> yeah, these are people quite well. They, this is like people between the ages of 25 and, and 45, which is a big chunk of the youth population, and they are starting to f- to turn. They they are getting fed up of what's happening. Um, in the education arena, in the work arena, and the changing nature of work and so on. But anyway, so it, it's a good result regardless. So we'll just have to see how that um, translates into real life. Right. So I'm scared to go play a quick station ID and then we'll get ready for our first interview. All right. Um, we have Mahmoud um, from the Kurdish kind of Democratic Centre in Melbourne um, on the line here. Um, we're going to be talking, having a, a quick kind of discussion with him about, you know, about the recent Turkey elections and, you know, what they kind of, what it kind of generally means um, for the Kurd, um, the struggle with the Kurds against kind of the oppression of the Turkish state. So, good morning, Mahmoud. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So, Mahmoud, what can you kind of tell us about, you know, the results of the elect uh, of the Turkish election and sort of some of the kind of political implications and maybe probably a bit of an overview of kind of what has happened. Yeah, look, it, it was probably one of the most unfair election uh, election campaign also in, in Turkey, and as a result, and uh, uh, Tayyip Erdogan, uh, current president Tayyip Erdogan, he's re-elected, but he re-elected with uh, new presidential power, and this is a terrible result for not only for the Kurds, for Kurds, uh, of course, it's a very bad result, but for all. Um, Democratic people of Turkey, or for socialists, or environmentalists, or, or feminists—it's a very, uh, very bad result. Not good for Turkish democracy at all. Hmm. And so, I guess, I mean, one of the one of the things that you know um, is this whole question of Aragon. And so, could, would you say that he's kind of increased sort of his power, you know, over the uh, Turkish uh, Definitely. Uh, now, Turkey uh, gone. Uh, from parliamentary system to presidential system, and this presidential system uh, in, in, never near like presidential system in France or in uh, uh, USA. Even Erdogan called this this is Turkish style presidential system. According to this presidential system, he can elect his own, uh, uh, can choose his own ministers. They don't have to be member of parliament. He can sack them whenever they want. He can appoint judges for. Uh, uh, Turkish Constitution, Constitutional Court and High Court, and can't be imputed uh, unless 400 member of Parliament say yes, and then it should go to uh, Constitutional Court, and co- where he elect uh, or select all the members, and almost impossible for him to be imputed. And now he'll, I mean, he'll do. Uh, he got all the power from Parliament, 
the parliament doesn't have much power at all in Turkey. It's the one-man uh, system now in Turkey. So, um, Mahmoud Salita here. Um, what do you see in relation to the, the, the battle that the Kurds have been fighting for such a long time? And they did gain 11% of the votes, which is sure. a, a solid showing. Sure. Um, if, if Parliament's not going to be much use in terms of you know, doing the right thing by the people, what do you think the Kurds will be able to do with this 11% uh, they have won? For Kurds or for Kurdish movement, uh, parliament is not the only way to uh, uh, continue your struggle. It's just one of the places you, you may be able to reach uh, people. But the real struggle will be going on streets. Mm. And 11%, almost 12%, 11.7 big achievement, considering before election and over 5,000 HDP activist members, uh, including their ex-co-presidents and MPs being jailed, and, and they, they, uh, they couldn't seen by the media at all because media blockage on, on them, and their uh, presidential candidate, Mr. Selatin Demirtas, in jail, and during election campaign, and many officers have been attacked again in a town called Suruç in uh, North Kurdistan, and in that town, uh, AKP candidates uh, and his brothers and uh, his securities, they killed just, just a few days before election uh, three uh, HDP activists. And it was very, uh, I mean, it was a miracle even for HDP to able to uh, go in election. But HDP is uh, important party not because only uh, uh, he rep rep represents Kurds, but HDP also uh, represent and include many Turkish socialists mm. and feminists, environmentalists, and even uh, during the election they had uh, openly gay candidates. And this happened second time in Turkey, and last time was again HDP had one gay candidate. I mean, it's uh, this is uh, this was important for Turkish democracy, uh, despite of all these difficulties and impossibilities to HDP to. Uh, almost get 12% vote and 6-12 member of parliament. But, but I, as I said earlier, parliament doesn't have much power now, but it's only one place for Kurds and other socialists, other Democrats to uh, continue with their struggle. But parliament is not uh, everything for uh, Kurds, for HDB as well. Hmm. So you see more street fights um, for the uh, Unfortunately, more, more struggle because... AKP uh, only win because they uh, had coalition with the uh, far-right uh, National Action Party. Mm. Otherwise, they couldn't get majority in parliament, and Mr. Erdogan couldn't get over 50% to become a uh, pre president. And also, everyone's still questioning how it comes MHP party got 11%, because just before election, they split it, and no one uh, even guessed they can get over 5%. They didn't have even any election rally because they didn't have that much power. And still people questioning this, and we believe that there was a, some, some kind of setup. I mean, this is not real, this is not real result at all. And now, uh, yeah, Turkey went more far right and more conservative uh, politics. Therefore, I think uh, Mr. Erdogan and his uh, coalitions, uh, MHP, uh, only can promise war to Turkish people, nothing else. Because, uh, during the election campaign, even they were 
saying they're going to attack uh, northern Iraq and South Kurdistan or Syria or uh, all about war and nothing else. Mm. So why do you think that that's, um, uh, Erdogan had such enormous support among the people? That is, uh, assuming the, the elections were in any way fair or, or, or you know, independent, um, so what look, is the analysis? Look, in, 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 in Turkey, uh, there is far-right and there is religious-based politics. It's just strong. I mean, Erdogan got some, some base. I mean, in fact, Erdogan probably, if it was fair election, he could get about 30-35%. This is understandable. This is reasonable because of political of Turkey. So over the years, so much nationalism, so much religious. But getting, uh, as a president, presidential candidate getting uh, 52%, this is impossible. Uh, the, the only reason, uh, definitely there was some vote rigging, and also uh, we believe there is a major computer hacking, or uh, it's already uh, set up. And mm. uh, saying this, his party, uh, if you compare last election, they was, uh, lost 7%. Last election, they got 49%. This mm. election... 42 percent. There was a big opposition uh, uh, to his party from uh, people of uh, Turkey, but uh, 95 percent of media in Turkey, at least 95 percent, now controlled by Erdogan. Uh, Before election, there was one major uh, media uh, group which uh, which hasn't been controlled, influenced, but hasn't been 100 percent controlled, which was more Kemalist. called Doan Group, before election, been bought by his friends, and with billions and billions of uh, dollars, and one of the Turkish uh, 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 government's bank, uh, they supply money for this, and no media coverage for uh, opposition. Hmm. For HTP, no media coverage at all. For rest of the opposition, very little media c- uh, coverage. And and he controlled almost everything, even... Um, Electoral Commission, and we knew most likely it's going to win again, but we thought it's going to be at this uh, second stage for presidential run. But before election, I mean, now Erdogan control army, called police and education and, and judges and electoral commissions, and uh, ex- expecting different results would be, um, I mean, would be very hard. Would be very surprised because he's he control everything. And also one other point, and as usual, uh, uh, the Western countries, they didn't surprise us. The uh, USA, uh, UK, uh, Germany, they support Erdogan. Even there was some criticism yes. just before election, a few days before election. Or, or, sorry, it was probably uh, not two days, but uh, two weeks or a few weeks before election. As Theresa May, he met with Erdogan. Erdogan stayed in London three days, and he because Turkey is now going through economic struggle, and his economy minister went there, and uh, chief of uh, uh, Reserve Bank went there, and they, I think they got some loans from England, and Theresa May comes out with him on media and show his support to him, and USA just had some kind of agreement about Minbich, uh, which is city north, uh, which is located in north, northern Syria, and now uh, controlled by Syrian Democratic Forces, and th- uh, they want to work in Turkey, in, in that city. And uh, unfortunately, this capitalist, imperialist government, uh, they want so-called 
stable uh, government, even uh, this government is ruled by dictator, as long as they make their business, they don't really care for right of the uh, people, and they support him as well. And therefore, not big surprise for us, because he's already been set up before uh, election him to win. Mm. It's an interesting analysis. I was listening to you and I'm thinking the attitude of, of the countries or some of the countries in the EU um, is, is very, um, you know, it, it, it's prominent in the sense that when Venezuela, which was declared to have one of the most democratic elections in the world, was condemned for the elections there, um, and, and, you know, countries, all the Western countries had a, had a say about how terrible it was and how corrupt it was yeah. and everything. And yet it was one of the best, according to even, even one of the observers, like uh, Richard Nixon, who went there. Um, not, ri- not, not Richard, Nixon, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, who went there, yeah. was full of praise for the Nixon's system. Dead. I got them mixed up. <laughs> As usual. And, and it's a contrast, isn't it, when, when, in the, when the candidate of this country is uh, working hand in glove with these guys. The, the, from uh, from Europe and from European Union yes. and some parliamentarian and electoral observers, I went to Turkey yep. and just uh, I think yesterday and day before they also uh, uh, released their reports. They they criticized this election. They they, they said it wasn't fair, especially or media didn't give any chance to any other candidates. They they criticized. But uh, what happened in Europe? I mean, there is a, a, a double face. There is some criticism comes from uh, uh, some government. But on the other hand, behind the closed doors, uh, the business agreements and uh, armed uh, weapons agreements, agreements yes. goes very well with Turkey. Of course. They n- haven't stopped any of this. Hmm. There's many uh, t- trades and uh, uh, selling arms to Turkey, weapons to Turkey. Uh, uh, it's, I mean, they, even France, they were criticizing Turkey, but just recently they have big uh, um, the agreements with uh, friends, uh, they, they're buying more weapons from there and they, they're selling and buying more stuff friends. This is totally double standard. Yeah, of course. And they always do this, don't they? Yes. But thank you very much, Mahmoud. It's thank been you. very Thanks interesting. Thank you. And I hope the listeners um, got better information from you than, than the mainstream media. <laughs> thank you very oh, much. Of course. Okay. So. Bye. Have a good morning. Bye. 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 All right, um, so we're in the studio today. Um, we have two new guests have just popped up uh, in the studio. Um, yeah, they were just passing. Yeah, by. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> they, um, so Madeline and Tori um, from uh, Australian Students Environmental Network are here today to talk uh, to us about the upcoming Students of Sustainability Conference, um, which is going to be happening in Melbourne from July 7th. Uh, to the 12th, or was it July 6th to the 12th? I forgot. Uh, ju- hi. Uh, yep. Yeah, July, people will be arriving on July 6th with workshops starting on the 7th. Yeah. Yep, to the 12th. All right, so what can you give us a bit of an overview of the conference um, and kind of, you know, what Students Sustainability is at? Because it has been a conference that has been, you know, running for quite a long time, I think going all the way back to the 80s or mm-hmm. the early 90s. Um, and I've been to probably, this will probably be my fourth. Um, Student Sustainability mm. Conference I'll be going to in a row. So, yeah, give us a bit of a overview. Amazing. Um, hey, I'm Maddie. Um, so, Students of Sustainability is um, a big gathering of folks from all around the country, um, and our focus is on social and environmental justice. And we have four days of um, really great workshops and plenary sessions. Um, with various members of the community all um, 
coming along and sharing their knowledge and skills with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah, and totally. And it very much started out like in the early nineties. It, it was very much a, a, a climate-related and focused conference. It was started by like science students, um, but since then it's really opened up. Um, you know, in understanding ecology and the environment as not just, you know, trees and water and the ozone, but, like, people. And so I think that's where things really broadened up to social justice. And and being here in Australia on stolen land, it's also become much and much more focused and centred around First Nations struggles and issues. Yeah. And so what can you... Because um, one of the notable things, I guess, about the Student Sustainability Conference is the fact that it brings actually together a lot of... Um, Aboriginal activists and people from the Aboriginal community. Can what can you kind of tell us about what what the kind of um, conference has in store around in terms of what covering First Nations sovereignty? Mm-hmm. Um, well, each day from ten till twelve, we'll have a plenary session where we have a panel um, just of First Nations guests to talk about um, various topics and themes that we've come up with a different theme for each day, mm-hmm. um, so we can really. Yeah, just centre their voices and prioritise what they have to say and that'll inform kind of how we look at everything else in the in the wider context of the conference and in our lives. Yeah. Mm. yeah, totally. And I think specifically, I'm trying to think, coming to mind, I know we've got uh, Grandmothers Against Removal coming down from NT and also people working on shut youth prisons. Um, and folks from the Northern Territory mm-hmm. um, coming down to talk about the intervention and the mm-hmm. fracking. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got um, some folks from Tasmania, um, some uh, folks from uh, ANFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you when you say it's it's a conference about sustainability, mm-hmm. you are what are you actually referring to? What are you going to sustain? Mm, exactly, <laughs> it's such an important question. And actually, uh, last year when I arrived at the conference, I opened up the program and someone had written a very interesting essay, which was really questioning the name of the conference and like talking about what is like exactly that, like what are we actually sustaining? Because I don't think many people come to the conference wanting to like hold together this like system that we're in right now that's pretty dysfunctional and it's never really included and sustained everyone it's actually functioned on the exclusion of so many people so i think that people like that word sustainability also you know it's become a bit of a buzzword you know um so i think that people are really coming to more than sustain something really shake things up um, and talk about what really needs to change. Um, yeah, at least from my perspective. <laughs> they even came up with other um, acronyms that were to do with SOS that weren't just <laughs> students of sustainability, but that's kind of the name that it's been going with for so long now. So I think it's just stuck, but it's definitely more than just students and just sustainability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess going into that, um, what can you kind of tell us um, about um, the program, because on the website they um, indicates that there's all these kind of different kind of types of workshops mm. and kind of want to know in kind of more detail about what kind of content the the workshops of what the program is going to have. Mm-hmm. And you probably just come up with just a few yeah. examples of what um, you have in store for the conference. Um, there's lots of uh, workshops about um, various campaigns that are happening across the country. Um some activism skills, um, 
some stuff about well-being, um, like mm. how to communicate well with people, um, um, some field trips, like we'll head out to um, the Manong Patch on the Merry, um, and also the Joe's Organic um, Farmer's Garden. Mm. Um, Do you have any workshops um, pointing the youth? I'm assuming it's all the youth who are coming to your conference, or some, mm. some older people like me might come too. Um, how do you um, win this, this battle that's going on t- today where the environment is being um, terribly, terribly um, injured, mm. uh, to put it mildly, really, mm-hmm. uh, and destroyed in many, many parts of the world? Mm. Um, what actions do you think the youth or the people who come to your conference are going to be asked to take, if anything, um, or how, you, how they are going to maintain that, that desire to, to sustain? Mm. Mm. Um, what kind of actions? I think that there's... I think that uh, the conference kind of like has a broad range of actions that people could come and learn to take away from because there's people that are coming and are doing uh, organizing that's directed more towards like you know representative politics and like there's like those kind of uh, those kind of uh, petitions and campaigning but then there's also people that are doing more kind of uh, direct action on the front line of of these crisis points um, and yeah I, I guess everything in between, so I think that people very much like well my from when I went, first went to SOS, I very much came away realizing that <laughs> like the issue is so much bigger than I thought it was. It is. <laughs> very, very big. Yeah, but also that like, there was just so many people working on it in so many different ways, um, and that like this was really a space where people are going to come together and talk about it together. Um, but the going away, the kind of the choice was mine about how I wanted to partake. Yeah, I think mm. that that's probably the most powerful thing about it is that it, it provides a space where you can meet other people who are also involved and have been involved for a long time mm. or other people who are maybe new to it as well and you kind of create that community of people working together whereas in your life outside of that, like I felt for a long time I really wanted to be involved in a community that was doing this stuff but it's often kind of hard to find and I found that SOS mm. was really helpful for that. Yeah. Mm. So from from conference to conference what do they do you know from this this conference the next year's conference what do you what do you um, expect to gain from the activities uh, from conference to conference, do they come back with experiences from the various ways they participate in the fights in the community? Um, and, and, and you know, uh, for me, the, the issue is it is coming to crisis point. In fact, some say it's already at crisis point, despite the conferences, despite the discussions, despite mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. mobilizations. Mm-hmm. It's extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. How do you... You know, how do you motivate these people? My, like my son tells me, my, you've, we've marched for, what, 40 years? Nothing has changed. If anything, is getting worse. So what are you marching for? So how do you answer? I mean, he's 20, and he's at an age where he should really be fighting for his future mm. to, to, to save the planet. Mm. And this is a question he's got. I mean, how can I act 
the question he really poses is how should young people act mm. to save the planet and, and have sustainability? Mm, totally. Uh, I think that, well, yeah, I think that SOS kind of does it in a way that once you're, once that kind of seed is embedded in you, because uh, SOS is run by the Australian Student Environment Network, which like, we're all a part of in one way or another. And so you're, we kind of become part of this broader network of people that are like, uh, whether they've just started or they've been doing it for years, that are out there taking action um, in, in many different ways. And so I guess it's a building that network so that we have a built, we are building like stronger communities from the beginning that are able to like participate in this like what can be very exhausting like change and and activism um over you know the rest of our lives ideally <laughs> um, but yeah i mean i think i can't give an answer of like it's all right. how can we act it's, yeah it's cuz so many different ways and you're right it is it is such a crisis point mm. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to say? Because I have another, I have a question. Just this is su- from someone who has gone for the past four years of SOS. Yes, I, yes, I have. Um, no, well, this will be the fourth one, I think. If I'm, being it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, just something I just <laughs> wanted to make. Um, and this could be kind of segued into a kind of final comment about the conference. Um, kind of question I sort of um, I want to sort of comment on and um, interested in hearing your kind of responses. One of the things I've noticed about the conference is it has. Um, I think, gone through a bit of an evolution. Mm. I mean, the first conference I went to in Adelaide was actually, you know, really dominated by, I guess, sort of big kind of environmental kind of um, organisations, well, NGOs. And since 2016, which was the Brisbane conference, what I've noticed is it has evolved in a kind of more radical kind of grassroots um, direction where, you know, it is more focused on communities, grassroots groups and NGOs appear to have much less of influence than they had previously because one of the political contexts, I guess, for student sustainability um, is back in the 90s, um, one of the, the dominant kind of things in the conference in the early 90s was the kind of rise of the Greens Party, um, which had a big kind of influence. But now in for these past two years of the SRSs I've been to, I think they've been a much it's a much different political context in a sense that it does seem to be I guess what you can I want to hear your comments on this it does appear to me that you know explicitly for the past two years that it is an anti-capitalist conference mm. um, SRS and it is more focused on grassroots community organising as opposed to sort of you know NGOs in, in the environment movement and I kind of want to hear your comments on do you think this year's conference will kind of continue that trend of being focused on in that kind of particular direction mm. Um, yeah, definitely. Like, um, I mean, we don't prioritise the voices of NGOs in any way. It's it's definitely focused on, um, like, the First Nations um, folks who are talking in our plenaries and um, just members of the community that have um, really valuable skills and knowledge to share, and it doesn't matter, like, what organisation they're from. It's more, um, yeah, mm. what they have to say and... and the politics is really important. Yeah. Something we think about because stuff always comes up. Um, and Azen and the community, we always are talking about the stuff that does come up at these conferences because it's really important and to, like, yeah, really listen to what people have to say and the issues and work towards creating something that's that really um, challenges mm. the current system. Yeah. 
Totally, yeah. It's and I think that it's really important that we because it somehow is bizarre that like there doesn't seem to be a huge plethora of really openly anti-capitalist like student organisations in Australia. But maybe there are. I just maybe I haven't met them. No, there um, aren't. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe I sound really arrogant. No, no. But and you're you're right. Um, it it is like it, we de- we definitely don't want to. Um, Centre NGOs, and I think that also has a lot to do with like the fact that SOS is organised in a different city each year by a different group of people, and so the way that the conference turns out does have a lot to do with those that different group of organisers each year. But something I think is also important about SOS is that it's been a lear- like Maddie said, it's been a learning process over the years. And the way that it's evolved has been really positive and we have so much to thank for the First Nations people that have been coming to the conference year after year after year and teaching us lessons mm. because the organisers have like had to learn as they go and they've been making mistakes as they've been learning how to decolonise their organising process. Uh, and, yeah, so we have so so much um, to thank for, mm. for, that, for that opportunity to learn and, and learn how to organise better. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I like yeah. the decolonization yeah. concept. Yeah. Guess the last thing is um, just um, where can people go in terms of like trying to because um, I know this is a paid conference that you have to pay to get into, or mm-hmm. um, just how what are the kind of details you can um, look up to to sort of book a ticket and also I just want to apologies for the hiccup, um, listeners. Uh, we will go straight on to the activist calendar checkup. Okay, so just to let comrades um, let people know that um, the. Um, the SO um, slash UGL gas maintenance workers are still fighting and they've been fighting for more than a year to stop massive um, pay cuts and the anti-family roster being forced onto them by um, by the sixth largest company in the world. Um, so you can um, you can go to their picket line in Longford or alternatively you can support their picket by transferring money to the Fair Pay Fighting Fund BSB 6330 one six zero five two So now what's happening this Thursday is there'll be a visual for Fahid and Refugee Week protection, projection and speak out. Um, they'll be at 6pm um, hosted by the National Gallery of Victoria, 180 St Kilda Road in Southbank and it's hosted by the Refugee Action Collective. On Sunday, there'll be a rally and march, Unite to Stop the Right, 11am at the Trades Hall, corner of Ligon um, and Street and Victoria Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be a forum um, next Tuesday on the 26th of June, um, hosted by Green Left Weekly, um, which is Universal Basic Income, a Solution for Inequality. Um, this will be will feature Owen Bennett, Catherine Phelps and Peter Boyle from Social Alliance. So it'll be at 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Also happening next Tuesday will be a Young Town Hall um, forum on on housing, um, and that will be at the Kathleen Sim Library and Community Centre, 251 Faraday Street, Carlton. And on Wednesday, there'll be a refugee um, fundraiser and you're invited to join Refugee Action Collective and Tamil Feast for a fundraiser dinner. All proceedings from the booking will go to the amazing refugee chefs of Tamil uh, Feast and there'll be a separate collection to support Rack's work. Um, so they'll be at 7pm at Sears at Stewart Street and Robert Street um, in Brunswick East. Um, on 
Friday the 29th of June, there'll be protests, no new coal, red line actions. It's time to draw a red line on the corruption, lies and destruction of our environment by the coal industry. This June, step up the struggle for a safe, safe climate and join people across Australia taking action. We're going to march with our banner around the Flinders Street slash Johnson Street intersection for 30 hours starting at 6am. So it'll be happening at Friday, June the 29th. Um, there'll be a forum on Saturday, June the 30th, Women, Climate Justice and the Climate Movement, um, hosted by Women's Climate Justice Collective and Counteract. And they'll be at, I think you can just search for Women, Climate Justice and the Climate Movement. Um, on Friday, July the 6th, there'll be the 2018 NAIDOC March, and they'll be happening at 9am at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, 186 Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. Um, there'll be music, um, Alex Syke and Emily Wawar at the Wesley Ann, um, who are Indigenous singer-songwriters and storytellers. In Emily Wawar and Alex, Alice Skye are coming together for a special joint national tour, and they'll be at 8pm at the Wesley Ann, 250 High Street in Northcote. Um, from Saturday, um, July 7th to July 8th, there'll be the Australian Refugee Action Network, A. Um, conference, um, which will be at the AMF buildings, 535 Lizard Street, and that's sort of happening all day from Saturday, July 7th to Sunday, July the 8th. And um, happening from July 7th to July 11th will be the Students' Sustainability Conference. Um, I'm not sure if the, the location is completely confirmed yet, um, but I have on good authority that is going to be at the Latrobe University campus in Bondura. Um, on Monday, July 9th, will be a week of action um, organised by Victorian Socialists. Fix public transport in Melbourne. We are not sardines. Um, for the week starting July um, 9th, they'll be leafleting at train stations and targeting train lines all around northern Metro- Melbourne. We'll have stalls, flyers and even a couple of sardine-themed stunt. Full details of all the times and places will be announced soon. Um, but it'll be starting on j- July the 9th. On Wednesday, July the 18th, there'll be a public meeting, Build Homes, Not Prisons, featuring um, Aden Omar, um, Stephen Jolly, and a speaker from the Flemington Kensington Legal Centre. And this will be at the Community Hall, Affen Gardens, Public Housing Estate, 140 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, and it's hosted by Victoria Socialists and Affen Gardens Public Housing Residents Association. Um, University of Melbourne Student Union will be organised, um, uh, as part of Winterfest, will be organising an activist history Tour, um, which will be happening at 10pm outside the Union House in University of Melbourne and it's hosted by the University um, Environmental Collective and University of Melbourne Student Union. Um, there'll be a performance, song and words with Uncle Jack Charles, an evening of music and spoken word with the legendary actor, musician, potter and Aboriginal elder Jack Charles at 7pm at St. Charles Bar, Charlie Bar and Functions at 386 to 388 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Um, on Saturday, July the 21st, um, there'll be a rally, Five Years Too Many, Bring Them Here. This July will mark five years since the PNG solution was announced, five years of limbo in offshore detention hellholes, two years since Manus was declared illegal, and that'll be happening at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street, and it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be a public meeting, um, Prentridge Prison, um, Other Voice from the Other Side, Peter Norton, um, which will be at 1.45pm at the Moreland City Library, corner of Victoria and Louisa Street in Coburg, and it's presented by the Coburg Historical Society. 
Um, and also another important announcement is on Thursday, June the 28th, there'll be a Longford SO Ugly one year tribute at 10 a.m. at Garrett's Road in Longford. Alright, so that's um, pretty much um, it for the activist calendar. Okay, we've got Lydia Top online. Um, she's unwell, so we'll make this a fairly quick interview. Mm. Yeah? Okay. And uh, sorry, listeners, that's, um, that was the end of announcements. And welcome, um, Lydia. Lydia Thorpe's a Greens uh, member uh, and for... Northcote. Northcote. I always keep thinking Batman, I don't know why. I live in Batman, that's it's, probably It's why. your electorate. I know, it is. Um, good morning, Lydia. Sorry to hear you unwell. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's been coming for a while, I think. So yeah. I'm glad that it kind of held off until today. But it is what it is. It's been a, a tough, you know, few weeks. Yeah, this and, is hard work, um, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, well, the treaty bill was passed late last night. So oh, okay. And um, were you happy with it? Um, it's, you know, well... It could have been a lot better. Of course, yes. Um, but we'll continue to fight for elders to, um, you know, be at the forefront. We'll continue to fight for sovereignty of clans to be acknowledged. Uh, and we'll continue to, you know, educate um, the government on what a real treaty process is about. Um, the definition of treaty in the legislation is quite um, weak. Mm. Um, so the Greens will keep them to account and um, will be, you know, right on their tail to ensure that um, they they come good with all the things that they said that they would through the, throughout this process. Mm, watch the space, eh? Mm. <laughs> okay, quickly, let's just get on to the 11 years since the intervention in the um, Northern Territory. Um, just wondering if, if the community is... Um, discussing this and what's happening in relation to doing something about it or stopping it, rather? Um, look, the Victorian um, community aren't, you know, they're, they're not um, involved in what's happening um, in the NT, but um, we're certainly, you know, I know the activists particularly are, are still very concerned about what um, is happening and, and you know, Stand with our brothers and sisters in the NT. I mean, the intervention, you know, both governments have allowed this to continue over the last 11 years. Mm. And there hasn't, you know, we haven't seen any good come out of the intervention. The statistics haven't changed. Our jails are still full of Aboriginal people, particularly in the NT. And, and you know, now they're starting to talk about a treaty as well, whilst... Um, they've taken now, taken you know, self-determinate, sorry, self-determining rights and human rights away mm. from the from the first people of that land. So, you know, what, what's it mean? Eleven years of what? Of continued genocide of our people? Um, that that's how I see it. Of course. And um, yeah, we we just you know. There's a, there's a group of, um, there, there's a collective of people that have been against the, the intervention from day one. That collective continues. Mm. And, um, yeah, we just, what do you do? What do you do when the government, um, both 
sides, both major parties, continue to oppress our people um, right across the country and continue that intervention. Hmm. It's a hard one, isn't it, when when there's such conservatism um, emanated by both political parties, and it's it's and the Greens being a, a, such a, for a small party uh, while fighting for it, um, haven't been able to make any inroads into that area. Um, and and we know that more um, since the Dylan the Dylan. Uh, uh, What's the Waller. Waller. I was going to say Waller. They said Dylan Waller's issue. It came to the fore and it sort of disappeared into the background again. So it's not a good sign. But we shall look at look at it further down the track and see if um, we can get someone from the Northern Territory to talk about it. But anyway, for thank thank you for for you know um, addressing yeah. them briefly. Um, sorry. Well, I just think you know with with your listeners, you know, people want to know what they can do for or with Aboriginal people. It's you know, it's stopping the injustice like what's happening in the Northern Territory. Yes. So when you do see a collective of of people um, trying to stand up on their own, you know, it's joining with that voice and 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 stopping this oppression that that continues. Mm. You know, we need. We had sixty thousand people march on the twenty sixth of January. We need to organise those 60,000 people to not just come out on the 26th of January but to stand with our people against these injustices mm. every day, not one day, every day. That's right. Absolutely right. Um, let's move on to another issue. I, I just didn't want to keep you on the uh, line for too long. Um, the, the protest about the birthing tree in um, the Western um, Highway of um, you know the Western Highway where the Vic Roads it's, it's um, yes. environmental issue. I, I just wondered if you if you're involved in that and if you could update us about what's happening there or, or even explain to listeners what that's about. What what is the birthing tree and how did that come about? Sure. sure. Well, I'm I'm not going to go into detail of the birthing tree, but there is um, there are a number of trees that are that are very significant culturally and environmentally along that stretch where they want to, where the government wants to widen the road. Um, there are a number of scarred trees and there are a number of trees that have been used by the Japarung people for, you know, for over 800... These trees are 800-year-old and Japarung people have used these trees for that time for shelter for cooking and and for for birthing so these are trees that um, have been culturally modified over this time and and hold high significance um, in Japarong people's lives so this, the trees are between Beaufort and Ararat particularly mm-hmm. the trees that we're talking about mm. Uh, and last Sunday, uh, I travelled to the area and saw for my, you know, saw for myself the amazing presence and significance of these trees. I stood with elders of, of Japarong and we've put in a number of injunctions, both state and, and federal injunctions to, to continue to protect these trees. There is a, a number of protesters at the site and that seems to be growing. 
um, Vic Rhodes have come back and said that they'll save two of the trees um, for the next six weeks. They won't touch the trees. Um, but of course, you know, we're talking 3,000 trees will be cleared oh as my part goodness. of this project. Mm. Over 250 of the trees are old growth living trees. Mm. And a number of those old growth living trees uh, have major cultural significance. Mm. So there's a number of um, injunctions in, and we're just waiting to see, um, you know, what weight they will have to in continuing the protection of these trees. Mm-hmm. We've also had a um, traditional owner body. So when I, Japarung, I'm, I'm a Japarung woman, so <laughs> these are my, you know, this is my area. Um, Eastern Ma traditional owner body have come out um, despite the government saying that they have supported this process. The Eastern Ma have come out and said that they haven't said that they support the process. So there's been a few um, discrepancies in terms of what the government is saying and what uh, the traditional owners are saying. Um, And that's evident that, you know, the government haven't done a proper process. The Labor government haven't done a proper process, a consultation process. And um, that seems to be, you know, how they operate. All the time, isn't it? Throughout the treaty process, there's not a proper consultation process with mm. grassroots mm. and now whilst we're excited about a treaty treaty process going forward we're cutting down our trees um, behind our back and and destruction of yes never ends ancient, it? ancient mm. trees yes this one particular tree that i went to actually two trees that i saw reminded me of um um you know that show, that movie that came out of, um, I can't, that's just escaped me now, where the people were, um, you know, their sacred tree was under threat by the developers. Um, Mm. Oh, sorry. That's That's all right, it'll come to you later. (laughs) Yeah, but, yeah, that's what it put me in mind of, in that we are still fighting for the sacred, this is like a church for us. Mm. And it's about to be desecrated. Yep, yep. And, and that's a good analogy for people to understand how important it is culturally to the Jawarong people. Um, so thank you so much for pointing that out to, to our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I also I believe that there's a group called Western Highway Conservation Group who is supporting your, plight, your, your uh, fight to, to stop the trees being chopped back. And, um, yes. Um, if there's any other way listeners can support the campaign. They can support by visiting the camp, actually. Yeah, they could. Yes. It's yeah. only a two-hour and 30-minute drive. Yes, but I just wondered if there are any groups within the Aboriginal community um, other than the Western um, Highway Conservation Group that uh, Lydia knew of that, that people can support. Yes, and, you know, go and visit the trees. Go and talk to them. Japarung people that are protecting these trees because you'll actually learn something and you'll learn of the significance of these trees and you'll see it for yourself. It's just truly amazing and I think that, you know, everyone needs to see this and particularly our children need to know why it's so important to protect these trees. Mm. 
Okay, thank you so much, um, Lydia. Despite being sick, uh, <laughs> lasted this long in the interview. Um, we'll 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 keep an eye on this and we'll get back and, and check on progress as time goes by. I hope we get better also, soon. One, thank you so much for that, and and thanks for having me. And also, you could write to the Premier um, and the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and. Um, let them know that these trees need to be um, saved, and they and that yeah, we just need to keep putting pressure on Absolutely. the government. Absolutely, okay. Stop this destruction. Yep. Thank you so much, Lydia. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Welcome back, listeners. That was Lydia Thorpe earlier on um, that you were listening to about um, the sacred trees between Beaufort and Ararat. So you can visit those trees, have a weekend drive, go and talk to the elders there, the Jabarong people, um, and get to know uh, a little bit about the Aboriginal culture and, and their ways and um, the significance of those trees. So it'll be um interesting drive anyway. So... Um, <clears throat> Jacob, you had something to say. Oh, yeah, so just a, a bit of a latest um, story on um, what's happening in sort of Latin America. Um, probably listeners probably heard last week that um, Argentina, um, I think pretty sure part has legislated or is in the process of legislating um, um, abortion rights, um, yes. which is really good. Um, but now and also following that in Venezuela, um, activists um, in Venezuela are now demanding a new uh, a gathering in term outside the of the Venezuela's national national constituent assembly, um, in terms of uh, presenting with us a series of proposals to legislate an abortion and to expand sexual and reproductive rights on June twentieth, um, and so. You know, they, um, they've kind of made the argument that, you know, these things are necessary, especially in light of the kind of economic crisis in, um, Venezuela. And of course, there's also, you know, what's also interesting in the kind of demands that are drafted up by this, um, activist organization is also a call to create a carer system, um, to avoid situations where women are forced to stay home or automatically made responsible for looking after children, um, the sicker of the elderly and where people do take on the role of care, they should be, you know, given proper compensation for their job, like any other job. Um, the proposal is presented by a range of um, feminist and LGBTI organisations, including La Arana Feminista, which is translated as Feminist Spider, the Information Network for Safe Abortion, and the Left Cultural Front. Um, in terms of the question of abortion rights, uh, Arania Feminista National Coordinator Nancy Gon. Zaliz, um, Gonzalez. Told, Gonzalez, um, told Venezuela and us our pro, um, proposal is explicit. The new constitution must have an article that states that women have a right to decide over their bodies and that they can interrupt unilaterally in a voluntary way a pregnancy. And of course, the state must guarantee the abort, the option to, um, abort in secure conditions through the second week, um, 12th week, um, of Pregnancy. Gestation or something. Sorry. Um, and of course. Gestation. Yeah. And of course, despite, um, just a bit of a more, bit of context, you know, despite the important gains for women's rights made during, um, Venezuela's pro-Bolivian revolution, you know, abortion still remains illegal in Venezuela, um, and it's punishable with six months to two years jail. Together with Pagri, Venezuela probably has the most restrictive abortion laws in South America. Um, but I guess it's good that, you know, ac- feminist activists are starting to get organised and to oh, sign yeah. the Women's demand. issues coming to the rise uh, internationally, and I think um, that that's really good. 
because the feminist movement had gone through a land for some time now. Mm. And um, that's a great um, step forward. But anyway, it's time to wrap up the, <coughs> excuse me, the program. And um, let's thank Sue Bolton, who is the Moulin um, City Councillor. And, <coughs> excuse me. And, of course, uh, Lydia Thorpe, the um, Greens member for Northcote, uh, for the interviews today. And just to remind uh, listeners that this program is podcasted, and I'll do that in the next few days. Um, we also are accessible on the Internet, and if you want to listen to this program again in the next uh, couple of days, it will be actually on the website. Um, I hope you have a good day today, and I hope you enjoyed the program. And we will be on again next Friday. Um, hope you'll tune in. Thank you for listening. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.